0: This episode is sponsored by Metrio. Metrio is an all-in-one sustainability reporting and analytics software that simplifies the collection, analysis, and communication of your ESG data. For more information, visit metrio.net. And this episode is sponsored by Moody's ESG Solutions, the leading provider of second-party opinions for sustainable bond and loan issuance. The group was recently appointed as SPO provider to the UK government. To communicate your sustainability goals with impact, contact Moody's ESG Solutions, where first-class insight is second nature. Visit moody's.com forward slash sustainable finance.
1: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of
2: 350.
1: I'm Joel McCower here at Oakland, California. On this week's edition, The Sights and Sounds of Circularity 21, Lisa Jackson on Apple's Make But Don't Take initiative, Adam Mittner's Travels in the Billion Dollar Trash Trade, Why Clean Tech is having a Xerox moment. And viewing the ocean with an astrobiofuturist. We're talking in circles this week on 350. It's June 18th, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, as we call it, Stage East, is Green Biz Editorial <laughs> Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather.
0: Hey, Joel. Yes, we are talking in circles. I'm babbling. I don't know about you. I'm a little tired. How are you?
1: I'm good. I don't have to ask you how your week was because we were together at least virtually all week as we did this uh participated in this great event and we're going to spend a good amount of time uh, in just a minute or two uh, with Lauren Phipps and Sue the two women who really put it together and hosted co-hosted the event and we're going to pick some of the uh, the great moments and play some clips for those of you who weren't able to get there or for those of you who were able to participate and want to Here's some of the what we liked and what we were inspired by, but yeah, quite a week, and uh, you had some great moments on stage in both breakouts and plenary as usual. Um, was it fun for you?
0: You know, it was really fun for me, and I, you know, when you get one of those people to interview, that is just so easy. You, you, they're so easy to talk to. And Catherine Coleman Flowers, who I interviewed um, about the issues of waste and and I'm talking about human waste, not just garbage, but sewage. She is so articulate and so passionate about what she does. She's working with rural communities to help them understand and address their, their wastewater and waste issues. And um, so inspiring and so easy to interview. <laughs> um, it's like one of those things where you just, you, you know, anyway, so I, I had a really great experience with that and, and I really enjoyed your conversation with Lisa Jackson, she's always so gracious with her time and and her knowledge. And I'm so, I was so thrilled to see you interviewing her again. I don't know if she's, has she been at Circularity before? I don't no, know. this was
1: her first time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, that was great. But you know, there were some of the breakouts that I really enjoyed. And two that come to mind was one is uh, a technology showcase that our colleague Sherry Tutaki, uh hosted with uh, four great entrepreneurs, um, or maybe it was three, sorry, Um It's sort of a blur this week. Uh, Doing some really inspiring things. There's one that is is capturing the the water vapor from HVAC. You know, on the you see all the steam billowing from the roofs of factories and office buildings. They're capturing that, and it's basically condensed water. It's condensation, and it can turn it back into water. And billions and billions, if not trillions, of gallons a year that go literally up in not up in smoke, but up in steam. And and so many other great uh, uh, great innovations. The other one I liked, was uh, it's called Tools of the Trade Circular Standards and Metrics, and I wasn't the only one who liked it. That virtual room was packed with nearly 200 people. Um, We had the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, and the Global Reporting Initiative, looking at what are the metrics, how do you actually measure circularity? Because right now, so much of this is an arm wave. We're a circular, this is a circular product. We're closing the loop, and all of those things And of course, it's not all about closing the loop and it's not all about things that you can even see. So how does a company not only measure circularity, but measure its progress over time? And it's a work in progress, like everything in sustainability, but that was a really interesting conversation.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, I spent a lot of time with the people not in sustainability, if, Mm -hmm. if you will, like the sessions that I was going to were focused on things like reverse logistics and remanufacturing and, and um, the power of procurement. So like the, the the individuals and the roles in companies that really need to come to play in order to make circular processes uh, happen. I mean, everything in sustainability really does need to be incorporated into a company, but with the circular economy in particular, with the lean manufacturing movement that we had of the years past that we now have to kind of move away from and think about differently. I was really fascinated with, having you know attending some of the conversations where there weren't sustainability or circular economy uh, folks on stage where where they were uh, you know contributing their thoughts and, and to the dialogue so that was really inspiring for me
1: as i've long said uh, sustainability is way too important to be left to sustainability departments and so that's a <laughs> your case in point uh, well we're gonna get to that a little bit more as i said with uh, lauren and susan just a few minutes but um, right now let's get to some other stories
0: The Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, aka PARC, pioneered many of the personal computing devices we now take for granted, such as the mouse. More recently, however, it has branched out into clean tech research and development. One of its most visible projects is using electrochemical concepts to remove humidity from the air, a breakthrough that the company claims has the potential to reduce energy consumption by 80%. I spoke with Jesse Revest, vice president and general manager of the Xerox Park organization, to get a sense of how the technology, which will be alpha tested in late 2021, might find its way to market. Spoiler, you probably won't see this in air conditioning retrofits. In theory, though, an air conditioner using the Xerox component could be used in either industrial, commercial, or residential settings. But like me, one of the first things you're probably wondering Why is Xerox interested in air conditioning in the first place? It's
3: surprising for a couple of reasons. First of all, you probably don't associate air conditioning with clean tech in general, and then second of all, you almost certainly don't associate air conditioning with Xerox. So I'll I'll try to hit on both of those. For the first one, the goal of all of our clean tech research is mitigating greenhouse gases and mitigating climate change, and so from that perspective we're not just focused on how can we make more solar panels or things that sound traditionally clean tech. We're very focused on where are the emissions happening and what can we do that will have meaningful impact in greenhouse gas emissions. And so when we look at where those are coming from, it's scattershot, right? There's no one major thing. It's a whole bunch of little things that add up to be a huge problem. And one of those is air conditioning. Air conditioning is responsible for more than 3% of all greenhouse gas emissions. And 3% sounds small, but 3% is actually more than the entire airline industry emissions combined every year. And so if we could hit really hard on this problem and slash those emissions in half, we could have more impact than eliminating all air travel. And so this is something that really motivates us and suddenly makes it sound very clean techy. And there, there is a pathway for that based on a technology that was invented here at PARC. Um, now I'll touch on the other angle that you could approach the question from is, wait a minute, clean tech and Xerox seems to make very little sense. But when you look at the structure of the business, at the end of the day, what does Xerox do? They assemble a bunch of parts into a printer, they wrap it in sheet metal, they finance it, they distribute it all over the world. In many cases, they own and operate it, they're servicing it, they're providing consumables. And that business structure, which is really hardware, software, and services wrapped together, is very analogous to what happens in the HVAC industry. And even from a brand perspective, Xerox is making the office a more efficient, more productive place. Air conditioning, likewise, makes the office a more humanly efficient and productive place.
0: So what makes this technology unique? How might it be commercialized? And where could it show up first? Here's Jesse Revest with some answers.
3: The key thing that the park technology is focusing on is to address the humidity in the air. So we've all had the experience of seeing an air conditioner that's dripping. And it's dripping because when you cool down air, moisture condenses out. It's not broken and it's not designed to drip. That's just what happens because of physics. And it's why we have dew on the grass in the morning is that the air cools down, moisture condenses out. But it turns out that uses up a lot of energy to condense out that moisture. And the way that the traditional technology, which is vapor compression, approaches it is very inefficient. So we've invented a way of doing that much more efficiently, which is based on electrochemistry. And that electrochemistry is not something that any of the HVAC players dabble in. It's not a related competency to what they do. So this is very out of the box thinking in terms of air conditioning. We're talking to partners. We're interested in partnering with HVAC majors to see how we can get this to market faster. Xerox also has great manufacturing capabilities as well as sales distribution and servicing. So there's also a world in which Xerox does this independently. We're open on business model. The technology applies to any air conditioning or any dehumidification in the world, um, from industrial to commercial to residential. And what we will look at as our go-to-market approach, as anyone would, is looking at what are the beachheads where there's a really strong pain point in the humidity levels or in air conditioning bills,
4: Mm -hmm. um, and
3: then work our way down to the smaller price points. The ultimate big win is in India and Indonesia, China, Brazil, emerging markets for air conditioning. And that reason is twofold. One, those markets are growing at two to four times the rate of all the rest of the world's air conditioning because the middle class is emerging. People are getting wealthier, which is wonderful. And they need air conditioning really badly because of climate change. Those regions are getting increasingly uncomfortable. So the big win for humanity, for the climate, for people's comfort, and for people's safety, frankly, is to be able to get into window units in those countries. And that price point is really difficult. And so that's the,
0: that's the long-term win. While Xerox doesn't disclose the research budget for PARC, you can expect this team to focus on thorny problems in greenhouse gas management, industrial decarbonization, and building energy. Once again, here's Jesse Revest addressing PARC's overarching cleantech strategy, along with some hints about where its team might be tinkering next.
3: The way we think about this is that there are kind of three categories of innovation that are needed in the world for the reduction of greenhouse gases. And the first one we call radical efficiency. So this is um, energy efficiency for sure, the air conditioner hits on this need, but it's also vehicle lightweighting. It's using less stuff. Xerox is actually strong in this because they are world leaders in remanufacturing. So they take back their big industrial printers at the end of life, they bring them back, they disassemble them, clean all the parts, throw out the broken ones, and put together another great printer. And so that radical efficiency is a really important one. Had we started with radical efficiency many, many decades ago as a society, we might not be in this situation. We might not need the other two categories, but unfortunately the efficiency isn't happening quickly enough. And so the next category that we think about is decarbonization. And decarbonization is effectively fuel switching. Since we're going to be using stuff and fuel, let's figure out, how to make it not emit greenhouse gases. And so to first order, that is electrification and green hydrogen. And there might be other fuels likely derived from green hydrogen, but that decarbonization is something that really needs to be hit on. And unfortunately, we're not going to go fast enough in this. And so we're going to need the third category, which is greenhouse gas management. So this category is thinking about measurement and verification of greenhouse gases, where are they leaking from, who's capturing them, who's putting them away are we converting them to a useful chemical or are we putting them underground and then are we verifying that they're staying underground or that the forests that have been planted are staying, growing and not be being cut down and emitting more greenhouse gases as they rot. So those are the three categories that we think about and we have a pretty rich portfolio of research
1: in all three. As we said at the top of the show, this week was Circularity 21 here at Green Biz, a week full of amazing and inspiring talks, interactive discussions, uh, show-and-tell expos, and so many other things having to do with the circular economy. Uh, Heather and I could tell you all about it, but a better way to do that is to bring in the two impresarios who put the event together and hosted it, Senior Analyst and Chair of Circularity, Lauren Phipps, and Circular Economy Analyst, Suze Oki. Yeah, welcome to you both.
0: Thank you. Hi there.
1: Heather, I know you've got questions for them. Why don't you just jump in?
0: Uh, so I, I'm going to ask the 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 vibe question, right? So it's been a year since we did this. You are our, you are our guinea pig of a virtual event um, last year. And uh, it was a great event last year. What's, how, how is the vibe feeling this year versus last year? How, do, how you know, what was the difference in attitude and mood? Lauren? I
5: am extremely biased, but <laughs> the mood and attitude and energy was just so deeply nourishing for me. When we are all individuals working, oftentimes the only the only person at a company that's working on a, a circular economy initiative or being kind of the the driver within a, an organization to have the opportunity to come together and really talk shop about the stuff that is most meaningful is just so exciting for for the community of folks that has really grown to to thousands. I remember we we launched the event in 2019 and we were shocked and odd when I think 800 people registered 850. Um, and to to grow to a virtual event and get to engage so many more people across roles and industries has just been amazing. So energy, very high engagement, very high.
6: I was just going to tack on there that um, I wasn't, I didn't think that we could really top the energy of last year. It felt so exciting for everyone to be in such a large community relatively early in the pandemic. And it really feels like somehow we've managed to to build on that engagement, uh, build an ambition and build the goals and achievements that these companies have been taking on. I know there was a lot of fear about reusable packaging falling off its own success route with fears of, you know, germs and contamination. And plastics were so cheap at the beginning of of the pandemic, but it seems like no one has really given up on their ambition and their enthusiasm. So just exciting to see that continuing to grow.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask about the pandemic because it's sort of an obvious question, but what did that do? Did, did, it doesn't sound like anything slowed down over the past year, but I'm wondering, did it actually maybe have a salutary effect where uh, maybe it, it allowed some things with the pause in the economy to to reset in a more circular way? Suze, what do you think?
6: I do feel that Being able to pause and take a beat to kind of reflect on how systems were operating before and how systems could operate gave a lot of companies to kind of reevaluate how business was operating and acknowledge, not that they needed to acknowledge it even more so, but that business as usual wasn't going to work. So I do actually think that amazingly enough, this pause, this pandemic that has kind of shaken the world has given us an opportunity to really catalyze circular initiatives
5: Yeah, to quote Billy Allman, who is an astrobiofuturist who opened the show at Circularity this week. You know, he talked about how we're living in the intertidal zone and how the waves of COVID or even the waves of the work that we're doing to address climate change, to address resource scarcity, business risk. We are in this space of constant change, and he, of course, invited us to be sand crabs and to, to think about sort of what role we play in that. And that feels so resonant and true as we move out of hopefully a less intense time of COVID and into a more
0: exciting time of, of opening back up.
1: Heather, I think yeah, you queued up some clips we're going to play, and one of them is, I think, is from Billy, right?
0: Absolutely, and I I love that talk too. Um, living in the intertidal zone, I I just it it talked you know talked about adaptation, right? So how these creatures, sand crabs, seaweed, and mussels, which I didn't even think about the mussels, <laughs> how they respond to the rising tides and the waves crashing around them. We humans have plenty to learn, and here's Billy with his thoughts on on what we can learn from these creatures.
7: So some of you all are small upstarts like the sand crab here. Some of you all are a little bit more established in in what you're doing, like the seaweed. And and some of you all are companies that have been around for a while and, and have this structure and infrastructure that allows you to survive some of these dynamic changes that have taken place. So let's dive a little bit deeper into that. For those of you who are sand crabs, you're very quick, you're nimble, you're able to uh, adapt quickly to to changes, you're able to ride the waves in a unique way. Uh, And so some thoughts that I wanted to share with you all uh, in terms of being able to adapt like this sand crab to this dynamic place as this small little organism is to think about the fact that sand crabs are actually able to, they're able to ride the wave, but they also know when they need to fortify themselves in one particular area. And, and essentially allow the wave to pass over them. But the interesting thing about the sand crab is that the sand crab actually burrows itself backwards into the sand and faces the waves head on. And in facing the waves head on, it, it puts out these feelers that allow it to capture opportunities or capture resources as the wave is passing by. So the question I want to ask you all or want you all to think about is what are those Feelers that you have put out, have you put out feelers that will allow you to capture opportunities that you haven't seen yet. And then the next the next group is is the seaweed. And the thing that I love about these seaweed organisms and organizations is the seaweed has itself anchored to one particular substrate or, or it's focused on one thing. But it also has these little, and you can see them in the picture there, these little air pockets uh, that allow it to stay buoyant. And so what happens is the seaweed is anchored to one thing, but because it has these elements of buoyancy, it's allowed to stay upright and still continue producing as it's being flexible and dynamic as possible moving around in in the waters of the ocean. So what are those things that will allow you to be buoyant, allow you to stay upright while staying focused on one thing? Uh, and allow you to be as flexible as possible in in the times and in the the periods of change that are still to come. And then finally, there's also the muscles. These are the organisms that uh, have been able to withstand the impact of of change. Uh, They close themselves off, but they also uh, periodically they open themselves up just enough to get a sense of how the world around them has changed, in order for them to identify when it's time for them to open up and adapt to the changing of the tide and of the times. Uh, and so, for those of you who are a little bit more established in what you're doing and and were able to fortify yourselves in these times of change, you still need to have an understanding of when it's time for you to assess when are the right opportunities and times to adapt to what's taking place around you. Uh, and and so as for us, the, this period of, of change and the tide begins to go from being a period of low tide to high tide for us, it's important that we remember these lessons of being flexible and dynamic in this space so that we can provide ourselves with opportunities to grow and change in the uncertainty to come.
0: Lauren, I want to go back to you because your setup for the the conference, your welcome, was was really also very grounding, I felt, for what we were talking about a moment ago, which is where we are now, how the systems need to change. And for many decisions in circular economy processes or whatever you wanna do, circular design, circular manufacturing, there's so much context that goes into these strategic decisions. You're you're making trade-offs, you need the history, you need you need to know about the linear process in order to not be the linear process anymore. I'm just wondering if you could elaborate on why context is so important for the strategic decisions we're making right now around circular economy.
5: Absolutely. Context is the the difference between kind of having a really good idea in a silo and actually making it work in practice and at its core and what I talked about in the opening was systems thinking and when we talk about the circular economy to to be circular, you know, so rarely are we talking about closed loops where I'm going to to make a material and get it immediately back and make it into the exact same thing. That's not really what we're talking about. That makes sense in some contexts, but mostly we're thinking about the way that value flows and we're thinking about commodities and materials at scale. So understanding your context, both within the value chain sort of where you're getting your materials from, where they're going to next, as well as all those enabling factors it takes to ensure that value does indeed continue to flow, whether we're talking about kind of those partnerships and collaborations, whether it's the storytelling and engagement to ensure you're getting back a garment for resale, whether you're thinking about any other part of a circular system, Um, that context is so important. And I think that's sort of what We tried to to do this week at Circularity was give people a space and an opportunity to really think critically about what their context is, whether it's economic, political, social, cultural, um, or or material or anything else.
1: I love that uh, presentation on Wednesday by Joe McLeod talking about consumer endings. He's an endineer. I think that's the way you say it, looking at the end of life. And that's the part of the context that I I don't think we see often enough. And I I think that spoke to me directly and connected to your, your great opening about the importance of thinking in terms of context. And you know we're all about making the next bright, shiny object, and we don't think about where that goes afterwards, and, and designing for that and thinking about the marketing and everything else that goes into that, the, the offboarding as he called it, as opposed to the onboarding, which is where we get someone excited about something to, to then buy it and use it. That struck me as, as sort of a different take. And is that part of what you're talking about here, Lauren? How does that fit into this whole idea of context?
5: I definitely think that's part of the context, but I actually love to hear what Suze has to say about that, given that she is a design thinker by trade and training.
6: Absolutely. Um, I really see design as this really incredible opportunity. And as you noted, and as was noted by Joe McCloud on the main stage, I think so much focus has been spent on the onboarding experience. And I think companies really see the value in roping in the consumer in that process. And it's such a shame that there hasn't been as much value seen in the opportunity at the end of the product's lifespan. The consumer is just as much a part of the process there. They are, And there's just as so much an opportunity to create value for them and to create value for your business if you're thoughtfully engaging them at the end of the process. And I really think that if we more strategically think about design and expand our perception of what design is to more thoughtfully curate for not just the customer, but for the product's lifespan. Um, We're going to see more successful companies, more successful circular economy, and more robust and engaged consumer
0: base. Yeah, I loved the uh, thoughts from Natalie Hollinger. Is that how her name is pronounced, Lauren? Right afterwards, she's a behavioral scientist, and um, she she built on, on that that discussion about how how you make it exciting and interesting for consumers to want to do this and, and how you make it part of the experience. And I, I really appreciated her thoughts on that because they, they built really well on top of the design thinking that, that Joe was was emphasizing. I'm curious, I'd love to have, um, hear more about what each of you felt were like your favorite moments. I know it's hard to pick because like your children, you don't want to pick a favorite child and all that good stuff, but. Were there um, particular moments of the event that that really struck you, that made you think differently, that just made you step back and go, "Whoa, um, I'm gonna start with you, Lauren.
5: Definitely hard to choose. The first thing that came to mind was hearing from Adam Minter. He's a Bloomberg columnist and author of a couple of fantastic books. He's someone that I just personally look up to a lot and and just think he's an incredible storyteller. So, it was exciting to have him on stage talking about something that I care so much about. Uh, we also in preparation for the event had a chance to talk a little bit about Ghana where we both spend some time. So that was really a lot of fun. But he asked this question that I saw really resonated with the chat at the event, which was, who defines what is waste? Is it the person who throws it away or the person who th- picks it up and works out what to do with it next or something like that? Um, and you know, it's a simple question. Because, you know, in the circular economy, we talk about redefining waste and reimagining waste and designing it out of our systems. But when we pause and just recognize, yes, in theory, that is what we would like to be doing. Um, there's a big gap between that and the reality Mm -hmm. that waste is all around us and certain communities Mm -hmm. are more impacted by waste. Mm -hmm. And it gets at some of the conversations around justice and power and Mm -hmm. environmental justice as we think about having a just transition to a circular economy and ensuring that what we're building doesn't just recreate some of the same challenges inherent
0: in our linear system. So
5: Adam Minter's talk was definitely a highlight for me.
0: So let's hit pause on that and let's Let's play that that clip because it was a really, I mean, just everyone, you could just hear the, even though we were virtual, you could hear the collective gasp like, whoa, wow. And so now you can hear it. So
2: here's Adam Minter with that question. Who defines what is waste? Is it the person who throws something out or is it the person who looks at that thing that's been thrown out and decides that, hey, I can reuse it? If I toss this charger into the trash and say it's e-waste, am I right? Or is the person who pulls it out and says, hey, wait a second, I can reuse that. Are they correct? This is the question that's really troubled me the last few years, and I think it has a really big impact on how we build circularity, not just in developed economies, but developing economies. So long as developed economies, the person who throws something away gets to say what is waste, we are going to miss the the opportunity to look at emerging markets where they have looked at waste differently, see reuse, repair, and other options before we do.
0: All right, we're taking us off pause now. And I'm gonna throw that question over to you, Joel. What was your favorite moment? And I'm thinking it might've had to do with your onstage interview.
1: Well, I'm not so egotistical to say that my favorite moment was the main stage interview that I did, so I'm not even gonna say that. But having said that, the interview with Lisa was is always great. We've, we've had her, I've, I've spoken with her on stage probably four times at different Green Biz events, and she's always thoughtful and and engaging and wise. And uh, this time we were talking about this um, initiative that they have, well, a few initiatives, but the main one was uh, Make But Don't Take, which is their initiative to make products out of uh, reclaimed and not uh, virgin materials. And it was pretty interesting and, and fairly impressive that uh, how far they've come or, and I don't have the data in, in top of mind, but some of their products are 90 plus percent made from reclaimed materials, and they're reclaiming uh, very, very high percentages from the phones and laptops and things that they're getting back, which is not to say all of their equipment. But another initiative that they're doing that sort of ties into this, and it ties into a lot of the themes we heard this week at Circularity, is Reggie, the Racial Equity and Justice Initiative, where they're, uh, Apple is investing in both in, in small, mid-sized businesses in communities of color and also in um, in academic programs at historically black colleges and universities to increase the number of entrepreneurs who are able to, uh, frankly, feed into their supply chain and other supply chains over time. And so uh, I like their holistic approach. I know there's, you know, Apple can be controversial. They, there's a lot of questions about the repairability and reusability of some of their products, at least by the consumer Um, But in general, you have to admire how they're approaching this and the holistic view. And uh, I think you've queued up uh, a clip from Lisa, right?
0: Actually, I've got two from her. And I'll just I'll do real quick, quick uh, intros here. First of all, you asked her about how circular economy initiatives and climate action are interrelated. Um, And she said they that Apple, they they very much uh, reinforce each other.
2: So here's Lisa Jackson. We started with the idea that we had three goals at Apple. One of them was climate change and impacting that challenge for the better. Another was resource efficiency. But as we worked those two goals, we realized what an impact one can have on the other. Um, So probably the best example I can give you is aluminum. We have spent a lot of time, we use aluminum in many of our enclosures at Apple. And so we spent time on recycled aluminum. That was really important. And also on uh, using uh, only aluminum that's smelted with hydroelectricity rather than fossil fuels because smelting is another piece of the pie. Um, Because of all the work we've done on recycling, um, our carbon emissions associated with aluminum have decreased by 72% since 2015. So you can see how those two you know, basically play off against each other and in a very reinforcing way.
0: I also really appreciated her thoughts about how Apple is using its buying influence as a bully pulpit to get its supply chain to
2: shift to circular economy processes. Once again, here's Lisa. It's going out um, in the case of aluminum and working with our suppliers, our CNC operators, our enclosure manufacturers and suppliers to say, hey, we want recycled material. In the beginning, it was making sure that they were incredibly careful with the aluminum, you know, scraps that come off of the CNC machines, because we knew, I mean, the good thing about our aluminum is it's specced pretty tightly. And so we know that recycling that aluminum is likely to give us the same beautiful, you know, enclosure that everyone associates with our products. But now we're starting to use more and more post-consumer recycle that doesn't come from our own manufacturing. And so it's working with them so that they feel more and more comfortable that Apple's alongside you as we test and qualify and make sure that this these new materials perform and look um, the way Apple customers expect them to look. So the bully pulpit is really about our procurement team, that work happens in our procurement operation. Um, and those relationships, of course, are longstanding and deep. And it's a matter of saying, hey, here's a journey we want to go on with you and challenging them to, uh, to use recycled materials is, is a big part of that.
6: So Suze, you're up. What was your moment? <laughs> Uh, Well, obviously, there are so many to choose from, but um, a session that I moderated midway through the week um, was exploring different roadmaps and resources that um, companies are creating to help get us to our 2025 packaging goals. Um, I know that I've been really thrilled to see that we've gone kind of above and beyond the ambitions of just reducing plastic usage. But I think it bears repeating that we cannot um, lose focus and ambition and insight into Reducing our plastic consumption and building systems that are going to more effectively make plastics circular. One really kind of eye popping insight that the research report covered is that by 2040, we are going to have 7.7 gigatons of mismanaged plastics if we do not change business as usual today. And I think that the quote was that that's 16 times the weight of the current population of humans on the planet today which is terrifying. Um, so I think it, it really inspires me to get this community together and know that there is still that ambition to address this. And again, we, we really can't lose focus as we begin to address the, the plastic crisis. The closing the plastics circularity gap by Google um, is going to come out today. So very excited to deep dive into that a little bit more and get some of those insights um, out to the public.
1: All right, Heather, let's wrap this. It's your turn. What's your favorite moment from Circularity 21?
0: Okay, I'm actually going to cheat and cue up something that happened off the main stage. It was a breakout session about the case for remanufacturing. This is something that many, many companies like Caterpillar have been doing a very, very long time. But it's becoming a Far more important element of the circular economy. So, here is Deborah Dull. She is the principal of manufacturing product management at GE Digital. I just loved this thought.
8: Remanufacturing is the future. When we look at uh, material scarcity risks, we've seen, we've all experienced this last year. We're seeing right to repair laws being passed around the world. We're finding circular operations are a great uh, mitigation strategy against supply chain risk the future will look more like rebuild reman than we have new builds. That transition will happen, I predict, in the next 10 years will be mostly refurbishing. This means then for our supply chains, we're gonna be pushing more towards what's called lot size one, high levels of individualization, meaning one item is experienced to the world and we need to know a lot about how it goes to the world so that we can refurbish it in the most efficient way. Some say this focus on individualization is will be the focus of the fifth industrial revolution. But I actually argue we're, we're doing it now, and we're still in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution. And so I think this gives some validity to all of the digitization we've seen across our value chains. And now we can really use it all for a purpose. Uh, and when I look at our own business units doing this, a great example is from our renewable uh, energy business. We have um, a large wind operation. And as part of that, we've got our remand facility in Texas, uh, which covers North America. They built this facility out using the best practices from all across different types of GE businesses, you know, also healthcare, also aviation, and really learning what works. What I love about this facility is they're approaching a way to really imagine scale, which is kind of tough when again, everything is a unique item, everything is lot size one. So when we think about scale, it looks a little bit different, but using this learning and already sharing uh, with our other operations around the world. I think renewables is really interesting because we tout it as a great source of clean energy, but actually the process of putting up a wind turbine is pretty dirty. When we think about uh, concrete that goes into it, the rare earth metals inside of a turbine. And so to be able to operate it in the cleanest, most circular way uh, becomes really important for us as we look at the life cycle. Ideally, we leave these running forever. And so we don't have that extraction. Um, We can minimize it as much as possible. One area I do wanna call out here though, is we as an industry have a gap in the way that we look at carbon accounting for reuse or remanufacturing. We don't really have rules yet or standards on how to do this. This is a topic that we're exploring together with Phillips and others as part of the Capital Equipment Coalition, thanks to PACE and Peter and team at the US Chamber of Commerce Foundation. They're pulling us together and we're starting to really explore this topic. And I'm really excited about where the discussions are going.
1: So many favorite moments, so little time, uh, but we will be playing some more clips from this week's uh, conference in next week's episode. So stay tuned for that for now. Thanks to Lauren Phipps and Sue the now very tired and deserving of a good rest impresarios of this week's conference. Congratulations on a great, great event.
6: Thank you. Thanks so much for having us.
0: I hope you're ready for three more highlights from the Greenbiz 30 under 30 list. We've featured our sixth annual cohort this year, including intrepid startup founders, tenacious corporate innovators, and determined public servants. This is
9: our latest batch. I will let them introduce themselves. Hi everyone, my name is Elizabeth Anaresch and I'm based in Santiago in Chile. I work at the United Nations Global Compact, which is the world's largest corporate sustainability initiative. I've experienced that when people hear sustainability, often they associate it only with environmental sustainability. So climate change, pollution, recycling, biodiversity and so on, which are all very important topics, of course. However, I strongly believe that social sustainability needs to be an equally important part of the discussion. For example, we know that women and vulnerable groups are disproportionately affected by climate change, and we will achieve more meaningful and long-term solutions if they're at the decision-making table for climate action. So currently, I'm managing our Target Gender Equality Initiative, which is an accelerator program supporting companies to set and meet ambitious targets for women's representation and leadership. So why are we focusing on this? Well, I'm sure you've noticed the many great gender equality policies and programs that companies talk about at sustainability conferences, which is, of course, a great sign that we're moving in the right direction. However, if you browse their web pages, you'll soon notice that the majority of boards and management teams are fully comprised of men, and most of them looking very much alike. So even though companies are taking action on gender equality, it does not translate to who has a voice at the top levels and the glass ceiling that we so often hear about still persists. So in a nutshell, through the Target Gender Equality Initiative, we're trying to move to holistic and accountable action. Since its launch last year, we were able to more than double the geographic scale of target gender equality, and I'm now working with our networks in 45 countries. It's really motivating for me to lead different local workshops and talk about the many challenges that are actually very, very similar from region to region when it comes to barriers for women's leadership, but also learn about the very context-specific issues that need to be at the center of solutions. Other areas I'm really passionate about are indigenous languages, sustainability in outer space, which seems like a topic that might be very nerdy, but it will actually become a really huge challenge on the long term if we don't act on it quickly, as well as the empowerment of youth. With regards to the latter, I try to take every opportunity I have to make sure my employer, so the United Nations, actually starts walking the talk and starts paying its interns to make sure opportunities within the system are not a matter of privilege, but are equal and inclusive.
10: Hi, my name is Yashin Shrestha. I'm the Director of Science and Research at Novi. Which is a uh, tech platform that is helping brands create more sustainable products by providing ingredient transparency across the supply chain. So I am also doing my MBA right now. It's all very much driven by the fact that, you know, I mean, you probably know of benefit corporations, but how, like, how sustainability in general should be the ethos of businesses in in general, and so. I definitely want to put my have my contribution where you know using green chemistry principles or practices um, in product development and in decisions that's made across corporations is is second nature. I know it's it's a very ambitious or a very high level, but that's ho- where I hope the future looks like. And from me personally, I think education is a huge piece of this the work that I do and. Obviously, from a product standpoint, there is there's ways you can make a brand or a retailer or a client more aware of what they should care about. But I want to be the um, a thought leader in helping bring forth those innovative ideas and practices that that are beyond just whether or not something is clean according to the current standards. But how do we push that needle even more by now looking at reducing the water consumption or water uses in products or using, you know, looking at packaging. I think that's where my, my, I, my passion really lies is right now is, you know, how do we reduce the amount of new plastics that are generated in packaging? How do we incorporate brands look at that uh, from a holistic view to, um, not only use better, you know, chemicals that are that are good for her. That's not going to leach into your product, but also like using more um, recycled content or more bio-based content, or or just different innovation around packaging to
4: reduce landfill contribution. Hi, I'm Danielle Tejas, and I'm a senior sustainability analyst at REI. I'm really excited about the idea of how businesses can start to derive value from products and services differently. And a lot of that I think is through unlocking opportunities in the circular economy. I think businesses are waking up to it that, you know, people like that are our age are looking for more service-based. We care about our environmental footprint. We want climate action to happen. So seeing that momentum build and being at this like intersection of environment and business, I think is super exciting and continuing to like, just draw that connection for people and how they can live their life more sustainably through the decisions that they're making. And the and same thing for businesses, the decisions that they're making are going to have implications for decades to come. I think that's pretty exciting. And it touches on climate. It touches on waste. It touches on water. Like all of these things that are like vitally important to the environment.
1: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're over there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish a different one every day of the week. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll learn more about them. We love to hear from you. Comments, questions, tips, ideas, complaints, anything you got. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.
0: This episode is sponsored by Metrio. Tired of all the effort required to build your ESG report? Use the Metrio sustainability reporting software to save time and money, allowing you to focus on what matters. For more information, please visit metrio.net. And this episode is sponsored by Moody's ESG Solutions the leading provider of second-party opinions for sustainable bond and loan issuance. The group was recently appointed as SPO provider to the UK government. To communicate your sustainability goals with impact, contact Moody's ESG Solutions, where first-class insight is second nature. Visit moody's.com forward slash sustainable finance.